This is Contact Mike. Hello. 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 Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Doe. It's a podcast about the things that make us human. Moments of change, indecision and, well, well, contact. Contact. Contact Mike is a podcast by Sarah Walker. What a cute noise. And Fleur Kilpatrick. That was like your skate rink voice. It's produced by Kieran Ruffles. Badass crypto warrior. And it's going to start. It's going to start. Now. Now. Chapter one. Since we last spoke, an island has had its life expectancy extended. The new Tongan island created by a volcano in 2014 was expected to last just months, but... It's still here, still reaching 120 metres above sea level, still the dark grey of solidified ash, and NASA thinks it will be around for years to come, so welcome to the map, little island. Since we last spoke, so many people have cried in public, and... Gavin and Steve have headed off on their second honeymoon. Since we last spoke, Theodora was returned to prison. Her appeal failed. She is serving 30 years for murder. One day when pregnant, Theodora fainted and when she woke, police told her she had murdered the baby she was carrying. That was in 2007, and in December 2017, her appeal failed. So, Teodoro is back in El Salvador's prisons for another 20 years. Chapter 2. Alright. Well, we maybe if we start with your, your first name and your rank, is that the word? Yeah, yeah. So, Captain Matt Thompson, pilot, B-Squadron, 5th Aviation Regiment. <laughs> Be so ready for some moments of like, is this the word? Yeah. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> Matt is a helicopter pilot in the Australian Army. I didn't know you could be a helicopter pilot in the Army. That's probably the number one most common misconception. Basically, planes are Air Force and then helicopters are Army. What was it about flight that appealed to you? I think to me it was about anything that had an engine and you could drive it <laughs> you know like i remember being about five and driving a golf cart around you know at the airfield and my dad being like don't you want to go for a fly and i'm like no nah, but i can't fly the aircraft but i can drive this golf yeah. cart. You know, like i want to do it you know so <laughs> that's sort of what it was and i think flying is just kind of the ultimate realization of that because it's the only time you can drive something in three axes you know so it's pretty unique in that way I can remember the first time I was at the controls, which was in a Tomahawk in Hilton Head in South Carolina, and I was about 10, I think. How yeah. did that feel? <laughs> to be honest, I think that was probably, I was still too young to really get what was going on. I didn't really fully appreciate it. Um, I think the first time I really had the experience of like, wow, this is, I'm really glad that <laughs> I've decided to embark on this kind of life journey of doing this was at the time you go first solo. At this point, he'd only logged 10 hours of flight time. This is what going solo is like. 
the instructor will get out of the aircraft and go, it's all yours, see you later, and off you go by yourself. There's no one else to ask questions if something goes wrong. But yeah, doing that first solo and the first time you look across and there's no one there and you're all by yourself and you think, geez, I hope <laughs> I hope I don't screw it up. <laughs> but yeah, the first circuit is nerve wracking and then the second one is just, it's bliss. It's amazing. You just feel all that stuff that people talk about, you know, the cliche freedom and whatnot. It's, it's true. <laughs> Here is a list of all the things that we knew about the Army before we met Matt. One. Very full of dads and grandpas. Two. Guns. Three. Tents. Four. Shouting. Five. People calling you a sissy when you don't climb a wall. We freely acknowledge that most of our Army knowledge came from a combination of Anzac Day and Arrested Development. So what did you expect training to be before you went? I thought it was going to be really tough. <laughs> I thought it was going to be really hard. Like, I thought it was going to be a culture shock um, as the first main thing. And I thought it was going to be, yeah, arduous, I guess. And it was. <laughs> so it was, it was all those things. But when I rocked up at Duntroon, the first time that we were sort of on parade, someone walked past and was kind of inspecting us. We were meant to be standing at attention. I was like, oh, hi, nice to meet you, and offered a handshake like anyone normally would. And he's just kind of looking at me going, yeah, it's, that's, that's not what you need to do. <laughs> he's like, just put your hand back down and stand there. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I thought, oh, geez, this is a different place. Like, <laughs> you know, these people are not the same as the people that I'm used to. When you first turn up, though, it's, it's tough. Um, and everyone experiences it differently, though. You might have a girl who's grown up in the country who's like some tough Jillaroo, and she's she's like, oh, this is great. You know, <laughs> I'd only be up at 4 a.m., and I'm only up at 5 a.m. now. This is heaps better, you know. But then she might get to a part where it's doing some intense academic exercise, and she might think, geez, it's pretty tough. You know, I've never had to sort of write official correspondence, for example. And then conversely, you might get some city kid who's sitting there going like this is brutal i'm just hitting you scrubbing a toilet mate <laughs> this is a nightmare <laughs> like i've never done anything like this before but then you know they might get to another part where they have to do an obstacle course and they turn out they're really fit and so they don't have any problems and they can help out someone else so you know it teaches you that diversity is the most important thing in any team because people who are different can compensate for each other's weaknesses and enhance each other's strengths whereas if everyone's the same you've all got the same strengths you've all got the same weaknesses so you know, if one problem turns up that you're not equipped to deal with, that's it, you're done. Like, you know, no one's got any way of overcoming it. And solutions come from the most unlikely of places. You know, people will surprise you. My dad, when he was in the Air Force, has stories about um, doing parades and standing at attention in, like, 40-degree heat and people passing out and not being able to help them, like having to just watch them break their nose and just stand there at attention. I feel like it sounds like the emotionality of the army has gotten a bit kinder. Like this idea that you've just got to be soldiers and you've got to, you know, like yeah, do what yeah. you're told. And yeah, it's a lot more touchy-feely and friendly these days, I guess. But it has changed along with society. So society in 1980 and society in 2017, different place. Like, And, yeah, I think that the army, it is its own unique organisation, but... The people that exist in the army and the soldiers of today are just a reflection of the people of society because they're just, they're just people. They're just an average Australian citizen. It's just that their day job happens to be putting on some camouflage uniform and, you know, blowing something up or running around. 
So, back to that arduous and tough training that Matt had heard about. So there's an exercise that you do at Dunshrew called Exercise Shaggy Ridge. Basically, it's designed to show you about sleep and food deprivation and what effect that has on your body. So in this thing, you end up spending about a week. You don't sleep for a bit over a week. And you eat maybe 24 hours worth of food over that week. So you're very, very hungry and you're very, very tired. How do they keep you awake? By constantly doing stuff. You don't stop. So you're constantly marching. You having to pull an artillery piece up a hill. You're having to do a problem-solving exercise where it's like you get to some position and then you'll be contacted by some enemy and you have to do a fighting withdrawal where you you know blank round so you're firing your way out. Um, so this just goes on and on and on non-stop for, for a week. Do you just cry all the time? <laughs> <laughs> people do. Yeah, people do. So. I remember when I was, I had very bad insomnia and I remember like seeing like a gambler's helpline poster and just like <laughs> bursting into tears. I was just like, the gamblers need help. Like, yeah, <laughs> imagine if they gave you a gun and you had to pretend to fight your way out of enemy field. <laughs> I would cry so much. <laughs> well, you, the way you get through it is with your team. That's how you get through it. So, yeah, it's individually, it's brutal, <laughs> you know. And I remember at the time when I was doing this exercise, my mum's 50th birthday was on. And one of the things that's designed to mess with you psychologically is like, yeah, cool, the trucks are coming on Saturday. Like, you'll be out of here on Saturday. And I'm like, oh, great, Saturday, no worries. That means I can get back by Saturday night and fly out and be in Sydney by Saturday to go to this birthday. The trucks aren't coming on Saturday. Like, so when you get to Saturday or Friday night and you're like, how are those trucks coming? Because we're pretty far from where they're meant to turn up and I don't think they're coming. And then they never turn up. And then you get to Sunday and you're like, how about those trucks? And those trucks don't turn up. Like, you know, and then it's sort of, you know, maybe Wednesday by the time you eventually get out of it. So, and then you finally get on the trucks and then bang, a big claymore explosion goes off and suddenly it's like, get off the trucks and you back off the trucks after having finally got on them. So what it's teaching you is that you've got to keep your chin up in adversity. So sometimes you, you just, you get to rock bottom and you think that's it. I'm, I can't, life can't get any worse. You know, I'm cold, I'm tired, I'm wet, I'm hungry. I just, I cannot deal with this situation anymore. And then you get shown that it actually could get worse. <laughs> and, and, and you're like, oh no, it's reached a new low. And at that point, if you get exposed to that enough times, you realize, you know what? Like, it's always going to get worse, but I'm also not going to suddenly lose the capacity to exist. Like, you're going to be able to continue battling on, and there's actually no limit to what you can deal with until such point as you pass out, I suppose. Which he totally did. We're marching along with our packs, and <laughs> I, I suddenly found myself waiting in line to go into, like, a fitness first gym. And I was in, I was in line, there was, you know, three people in front of me, um, and I'm sitting there going, oh, man, I'm going to be so late. I need to get in there, get my workout done, get out of here. And I leaned over to the guy, said to the guy who was at the desk, I'm like, hey, mate, can I, can I just go around these people? They're signing up or something. They're taking ages. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. It's fine. Go around. So I'm like, oh, thanks. So I go around, push through the turnstile. And I turned right, went in, into the change room to get changed. And, and as I sort of went to uh, sit down on the bench to get changed, I looked around me and I'm like, What's with all the stars? Why is it nighttime? Like, what's going on with this gym? This is madness. <laughs> Why am I lying down? And <laughs> I 
completely hallucinated and I just started daydreaming while marching, while walking along. I'd just completely gone off on a different planet and had marched myself off the road down into a culvert, into a drainage ditch and was now lying facing upwards in this drainage ditch. And there's another guy standing on the road looking down at me going, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? Why are you in my gym? Yeah, I was like, where am I? Who am I? Like, you know, so uh, yeah, it, it teaches you resilience basically is the main thing. And you learn how to find that from yourself and also learn how to draw it from others and how to give it to others too. It's like a triangle, being cold, tired, hungry, wet. You know, those are kind of like key factors for people as morale. And if you can get rid of just one of them, you'll be all right. Like you can be sitting under a tree in the rain, freezing cold, wet, you're super tired. But if someone gives you a hot meal, you know, your spirits will go through the roof. And so you just need one and you, yeah, it just, it resets your datum for what's reasonable and what's not reasonable, which then sets you up for success later on. Much of what is so bewildering to civilians about the army comes down to the hierarchy. Remember our list and being called a sissy for not climbing a wall? This comes from the absolute horror that most of us feel at the idea of being ordered around. And Matt had that too. When he left for the army, one of his friends wrote him a card. It said something like, good luck, man. You're pretty rebellious, so let's just see how this pans out. I guess it's kind of about growing up to some extent, but different parts of the army have it in different ways. So sometimes you need someone to do something and you don't have time to explain why. You just need them to do it because it's a time-critical issue. So if an artillery officer is on the line and he needs them to move the guns and fire them in a different direction... You know, he might give them an order to say, move them 20 degrees left. And the guy on the gun sitting there going, why? You know, I just, I just finished setting this up. But you just, you don't have time to have that discussion. You can explain later, but right now it's like, do it. And then it gets done. Do you have moments where you're like, I don't know if what we're doing in this place is a good thing? Yeah, for sure. That's, that's something that I think every soldier struggles with on deployment um, every time. Throughout this interview, this is something that Matt keeps reiterating that soldiers are just Australian citizens like everybody else, albeit armed. You know, we have those same discussions when we're having a barbecue at someone's house. (laughs) Um, It's no different. I guess the difference for us is that at the end of the day, we defend democracy. We don't practice it in the military. So, Hmm. you know, if we get told to do something, you'd go do it. Um, You can have your own personal reservations about something. You can either be supportive or, or, or against what it is that you're doing. But ultimately you've got to do it. So that's our job. That's what we get paid to do. If you've got a bunch of soldiers overseas on their day-to-day, they don't wake up in the morning and think, I'm really advancing the cause of whatever the political reason was for sending us there. They're waking up in the morning going, I'm all about three section, which is the you know team of sort of 10 people that they're in. And they're like, I'm, I'm waking up to, to help out Pete and you know, Sarah and whatever. Like, and so they look around, that's, that's who they're there for. They're there for their peers. They're not there for the, the broader ideological reasons. Matt hasn't been deployed on a combat mission and he has mixed feelings about this. It's lucky because it means I've never had to go fight in combat. So that's a good thing. On the other hand, it's, it's um, you know, you train for a job. So you're always looking for an opportunity to go and do that job. I guess, which is not to be confused with um, warmongering or, or, or any of that sort of attitude. It's just that uh, if the government requires us to do a job, it's happening whether we like it or not. So you want to be there so you can help out and do the best job you can. 
Most of his peers from Duntroon have been deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan. What structures are there in place to help you deal with the fact that, for example, you're probably going to have to kill people? How do they prepare you for that? Um, so one of the biggest differences in terms of how combat's changed over the last 100 years or so is you could call it desensitisation, but I think that's a kind of... That's probably a poor way of describing it. It's, it's more um, professionalism, I guess. The difference is that today we don't have conscripted soldiers. We've got professional soldiers. So, you know, during the time of World War II, for example, we needed X amount of people and we just didn't have that in the military. So we had to ask everybody to do it. So you had someone who was a baker one day and the next day they're holding a rifle. And it's, that's an that's a entirely confronting and a whole different sort of story. So, you know, you ask that person to go from their normal life to an environment that, like what you just described... And then to engage in combat, it's pretty tough. Like getting the person to actually pull the trigger is, is actually quite difficult. Absolutely. I think I remember my grandfather saying as well, you know, oh, well, the farmers were pretty good because we could all kind of shoot already. And like just relying on like <laughs> yeah. who has like used a gun to shoot rabbits in the past. So like, that'll be good. <laughs> Off you go. Oh 100%. Like I've been in defence for nine years now. Yeah. Like I've been in the army for nine years. And... You know, now I'm a captain of an aircraft and flying around. If this was, you know, World War Two, that would have happened at about year one. You know, like the yeah. officer training and the flying training would have all been done in about 12, 18 months or something. Mm. And it would have been like, right, catch you go, go flying, go fighting. <laughs> like I feel pretty well prepared at this point. But, you know, if you'd asked me at two years into this process, I'd be like, I'm not ready for this. Yeah, <laughs> in no way. So yeah. it's it's extraordinary when you think what, people went through yeah. in those conflicts and world war one as well whereas with a professional you take the emotion out of it it becomes much more of a job i guess and that's not to say that it's about training sociopaths that's certainly not what it is um the rules of engagement and laws of armed conflict are very very specific about this so when someone is put in that situation there's a lot of gates that you have to pass through i guess prior to being able to use deadly force and the main one really what it boils down to is that you're directly in in threat so someone is directly trying to kill you you are then empowered to do the same to them that's what it is that's that's combat um so uh, you don't go looking for a fight but once you find yourself in a fight then you know you're allowed to end it i feel like my idea of the military has always been very framed by what you hear of, say, America's involvement in the Middle East, where it's like, and then we blew up this whole cave system with a giant bomb and we probably killed a bunch of civilians. When we did this interview, America had just dropped the Moab bomb on ISIL tunnels in Afghanistan. Moab stands for Massive Ordnance Air Blast, but it quickly came to be called the mother of all bombs. If you go on YouTube, you can watch tests of the Moab filmed in 2003 desert, exploding and human-shaped dummies shattering instantaneously, followed by a mushroom cloud rising up into the sky. It looks scary. It's meant to look scary. It was designed as part of the shock and awe campaign. It was never meant to be used. It was. Today, when you watch that 2003 video with the plastic body shattering, YouTube's Up Next list to the right of your screen offers footage of the blast in Afghanistan, then a tour through the rubble, which looks like a dig of an ancient archaeological site, not somewhere people were living in April. 
And then it suggests a third video entitled Russia's FOAB is four times stronger than the American MOAB. There you have it. Military escalation and one-upmanship in the YouTube Up Next list. This is what we think of when we think of the military and war. But again and again, Matt guides us away from these images. And the way you're framing it feels a lot more to me like what my idea of the police is. And I've never really put those two things together. I feel like, yeah, I have difficulty bridging the gap between we bombed a whole cave network and probably killed a bunch of people, maybe, and we only shoot when we're in danger. When you hear about those kind of things happening, how does that relate to what you guys do for a living? Yeah, so that's a really good analogy too about the police. We just do it on a different scale. America is a particularly interesting comparison too because we talk about scaling up. They're another whole order of magnitude on top of us. So when they do things, they do things on a much bigger scale. Matt has a lot of faith in the international laws of armed conflict and their ability to hold nations, even big ones, in check. And they're international laws for a reason because everyone's gotten together and decided that that's a reasonable way to behave because conflict is what it is. It's always going to be a thing. You know, if I have rice and you want rice, then you're going to say, give me some of that rice. If I say no, then eventually you're going to come and try and take it. And that's just humanity. And that's sadly the way it is. And that's why we have defence, to protect ourselves. So as a result of that, I mean, we have to be prepared to bring violence in a controlled way, in a controlled circumstance for an appropriate outcome. So things like proportionality. So you talked about that big bomb before. You know, if you looked at a very small objectives and this huge big bomb, you go, that's not proportional. That's, that's ridiculous. Like it's, you know, bringing a bazooka to a knife fight kind of thing. It's just... It, it's not appropriate but you know who knows like we don't know what the intelligence was of of that particular incident that you talk about but there's a certain level of implicit trust that has to exist in the organization so when someone says something to you or when they do something you sort of feel that it's going to be okay and our military has got a very good reputation and that's not true of all countries like a lot of countries don't have that enviable track record you know are we perfect no of course not like no one's perfect but i guess my level of implicit trust of other members of defence, it is pretty high. If they're doing something, I know they're doing it because they think it's the right thing to do in that circumstance. And I hope that they would think the same about what I do. The question Matt dislikes the most is, have you killed anybody? That's the main thing that people think about when they think about defence. People walk up and say, oh, so have you killed anybody? And you sit there and go, that's... Like, I don't even know where to begin answering that question. And it's, and it's a question that soldiers often have to, to deal with. Um, and it's, in a lot of ways, it's a very reasonable question. But I guess it's way less macabre than people... You know, like, like, it's kind of the number one question people ask a lot of the time. And yet, that's just such a tiny part of the whole process of soldiering. And I know that sounds kind of ridiculous because it's like, well, that's what you're being hired to do. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's such a very, very small part. Like, the amount of people who actually have to go and engage in um you know combat um like mortal combat then it's very very small portion i guess of defense on the whole and in terms of how often those events might occur it depends on your job but how often those events might occur over the duration of an entire career a tiny you know there's like a couple of a couple of moments perhaps over years and years of service matt has gone through years of training years of simulated war of preparing for the worst and it not happening, of going home at the end of the day yet again, lucky yet ready. 
The most dramatic moments of Matt's career haven't come in the form of violence or war. They're just about flying. What it is to be up high and moving fast. I'd say the first time flying in really bad weather at low level on night vision, that's probably the most terrifying thing, the first time it happened. So when you fly on night vision, effectively at the end of the day, it's still like having two toilet rolls in front of your eye. Imagine looking through two toilet rolls and putting green cellophane on the outside. That's pretty much what it's like. So you're legally blind, but yet you're flying an aircraft. You know what I mean? It's, it's madness. We do all that flying, but we do it at 50 feet above the trees, you know. So we're 200k an hour across treetops, and you're doing that with those toilet rolls on. And you do it on a dark night where you can't see much, and you add bad weather with rain. And, you know, you think about driving along the freeway when it's really bucketing down at 100k an hour, and you can barely see, and you have to slow down. Imagine doing 200k an hour, but there's no windscreen wiper. And you've got the cellophane on, and it's night, and you're at 50 feet by the trees, and you're doing 200k an hour. You know, it's, it's pretty crazy. So the first time experiencing that, I was just terrified, but you get used to it, I guess. Matt doesn't know if he'll be in the army forever, but for now, this is his life. Up in the sky, seeing the world from above. And sometimes that world below is peaceful, and sometimes it's not. You fly over Bundaberg, you see the house destroyed, gone. Next house, right next to it. Right next, like, you know, metres away. Fine, totally untouched. So, yeah, it's brutal, but it's it's fair in its brutality. Like, it's so indiscriminate. So, yeah, natural disasters are just the most random things. Um, but the other thing that stands out about it is that people will surprise you. You'll see some really despicable stuff, like people being opportunists, but that is by far the minority. What overwhelmingly is the impression every time is how good people are when they have to come together as a community. Like Bundaberg were extraordinary. They were extraordinary. The way that those people pulled together and people from all over the country drove into Bundaberg to just help dig mud out of people's houses. I don't even know how these people knew that this was a thing to do. You know, they're just volunteers turned up from nowhere. So, yeah, disasters are, are horrible for obvious reasons, but they're also amazing because they show you you know, what the community's made of. So it's, yeah, I consider myself very lucky to have had the opportunity to help out in those environments. And it's, yeah, it's an incredible experience. Chapter three. I accidentally went to Anzac Day last year. How do you accidentally go to Anzac Day? By just heading into the city and suddenly being like, oh, why is traffic bad? And then you suddenly discover there's just like a million people with guns walking down the street. And it's actually really bizarre and disconcerting. I went to Anzac Day a fair bit when I was younger, but only with my grandparents. So I went to little country town Anzac Day, which is very different. There was like facial expressions that my grandparents only had for Anzac Day. What sort of facial expression? Just this look of determination that came over my grandmother. I can still picture it so clearly, her standing there with her handbag, the only sergeant with a handbag Mm. to be marching, and grandmother can suddenly transform from this little old lady that sits at the kitchen table eating too much chocolate to a sergeant. My grandmother, like a lot of people of her generation growing up in the country, had to drop out of school in year seven. I say that to say how remarkable it was that when the army were looking for really elite mathematicians to be in this very elite signals corps, my grandmother was one of about 
30 women from across Australia selected for this court. While my grandfather, you know, talked about his army experience, there was so much of what she heard she was not allowed to talk about. And till her death, she didn't really give us the full picture. She just said it was worse than anyone knew. We do long funerals in my family, so we told, like, the full story of of her um, and we talked quite a lot about her army service because it meant a lot to her and we talked about the fact that she refused to join the RSL until she was allowed to join as her own serving ex-service member as opposed to as the wife of Jim um, who was lower ranked than her I'd like hmm. to say and the head of the RSL got up to give his little speech after that and was like I didn't know any of that I didn't know that I had this person living in this town who had that specific experience we would have tried to get her story down more had we known and and it was very interesting even just if I think back to her funeral versus my grandfather's funeral my grandfather had the ex-servicemen all like you know he had a little honor guard of old men standing there at attention as his coffin was driven out and I don't think that happened for my grandmother despite you know them both serving in the same war what a lady. badass lady <laughs> Yeah, you would not have known it in a later life. No. no. Yeah, you spent so much time being like, you can't eat that much chocolate. Yeah. You can't. Granny, I said I was going to cook soup and you've eaten chocolate again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you know, a lot of these a lot of these older people have pretty incredible stories and pasts hidden. So that's my main association with Anzac Day. But then you rock up in the city and you have all of the current battalions I want to call them all of the companies service people all of the current service people marching and they're marching in full uniform which includes their guns and I found it so disconcerting because to me Anzac Day is about remembering the dead and in this moment it felt like it was about celebrating war Mm. and It felt really disrespectful to me to be seeing guns, to commemorate a day where a heap of people were killed with guns. Mm. Anzac Day has always been really tied up with this idea of the great and glorious soldier and this idea of glorious sacred glory. Glory. Mm. Like, fucking hell. There's nothing glorious about being just mowed down by a fucking machine gun surrounded by barbed wire. Like, ugh. We think of war as something that happens somewhere else. Mm. And in World War II, there was a thing called the Brisbane Line. And that was the line behind which uh, all of the Australian Defence Force was going to retreat in the instance of a land invasion from the north. So they'd let them take all of Queensland, all of Northern Territory, all of Northern WA. But at the the horizontal line that Brisbane sits on, that was where they were going to stop and defend after they'd let them sort of exhaust themselves by taking half of Australia, by taking half of a continent. You know, I mean, we sort of look at contemporary military service people walking down the streets of a city in Australia with guns and think like, but that's so violent and, and why why is that even a thing? Why is that necessary? But, you know, with, within sort of a generation or two generations of living memory, we were literally making plans that involved letting them take half the continent and then digging in our heels and trying to push them back. The fact that we haven't had an armed conflict on Australian territory for a long time doesn't mean it never happened. The people who are service people today would be the first to tell you that it could still happen and that's why we need a defence force, we need these people. Well, it actually feels quite current right now. I, I was on ABC website this morning seeing North North Korea Korea says 
if Australia stands with America, they'll be hell to pay kind of thing. And you're like, oh, that's, that's, that's me. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's something strange about being like, I don't stand with America. No one asked me. People ask me about whether some nice people I know can get married, but no one's asking me whether we want to stand with a, a war that I certainly don't support. My dad, conversely, was in the Air Force and was desperately trying to be sent to Vietnam. I was like, come on, let me go, let me go, let me go, let me go, let me kill people, let me, let me, let me. And they were like, you can stay behind this nice radar screen and you can monitor that. And I'm very grateful that that was the case. He was like 17 or something like that. Has he talked about why he wanted to go? Because Yeah, because he was young and stupid and male. There was six brothers, six boys. It was a very masculine household. Because the eldest had joined the Air Force, the rest of them were kind of like, oh, he's so cool. Oh, I want to be that cool and that capable and that manly. And yeah, so he came to Australia and joined the Air Force very early on and thought that the best thing you could possibly be was manly and the manliest thing you could be was a soldier. We're all very grateful that uh, he didn't end up getting sent anywhere because he was very foolhardy and... Yeah, like, thank God, spent most of his foolhardiness driving cars down sand dunes and, like, getting into car accidents and um, leaping over walls with a gun at his hip rather than leaping into battle with a gun at his hip. Matt was talking about this concept of resilience. You go and you do this training and it makes you a resilient person. You realise that you can be in a really horrible situation and still continue. But what's interesting is that in times of crisis, it's actually in some ways easier to be resilient and once you're back and just sitting quietly by yourself and trying to read a book that's when it's hard I mean as as a person who experiences anxiety I'm fine in a crisis I'm amazing in a crisis but you put me in a you know car driving down a flat road and that's when it happens and you know like the the moments when I'm sitting and trying to meditate that's that's when it comes out and I think that this idea of you know training for resilience doesn't cover the fact that you need to be able to just stop and that's when it's hard. I listened to a podcast recently, an episode of Radio Lab, where they talked about what are the processes when the president wants to make a nuclear attack? What are the safeguards? And it turns out that there aren't any. There is nobody whose job it is to be like, are you sure? Nobody. The president hits the button somewhere the light goes on and then they hit their button and then we release an attack. There's no process at all to stop someone from getting drunk and being like, oh, we'll just we'll just give it a go. Like there's nothing at all to stop that from happening. And this idea that Matt was talking about, about you just kind of have to trust the people in charge, I think is just so naive. It's so naive. I read Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein and she talks about how in Baghdad in the days after the Iraq war happened, the first thing that ran out was the supplies of Valium in the pharmacies. Because people were trying to just get on with their lives and being like, I'm going to need some help. And that was just, that detail is just so human and and so upsetting. This idea of just, you you just got to trust the people in charge. I feel like the people who end up in charge are not always the most trustworthy people. Us as civilians, I think it's really easy for us to lump America and Australia in together. Matt very much views the Australian Armed Forces as their own entity. And I I fully appreciate that um, Australia is like, oh, we'll come too every time America goes somewhere. But they also, their role is different. Frequently they will go to places being like, we are only here to be peacekeepers and things like that. And I, I, I totally hear what you're saying, but I... 
also appreciate that Matt was just talking about his faith in the Australian Armed Forces. Sure, but I mean, like, peacekeeping is a thing that should be done by local forces because that's how you repair a country. Like, mm. You don't just come in and be like, oh, we'll save you, because mm. uh, traditionally that hasn't worked out great anywhere. And I know it's very easy for me as an educated, nice white person to be like, oh, no, war's terrible. If only we could avoid it. But, like, Matt talking about this idea of I've got some rice and if you want the rice and I say, no, you can't have the rice, you'll fight me for the rice. And I think that whole narrative totally ignores the idea that maybe we could just have a chat, reach a compromise. Maybe I could give you some of my rice. And I think, you know, obviously we're talking about the structure of the entire world and the way that the world has been structured for a very, very long time. But obviously this is not an easy conversation, but I think there's just so much complexity in here and I certainly could not find myself in a position in the armed forces and be like, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to work and I'm thinking about flaring here and like I I don't think I could do that. I had a little window into the difficulties of having a chat. Black Lung Theatre and Whaling Firm did this show, uh, Doku Rai, a couple of years ago and they made it with a group of Timorese um, performers uh, and we afterwards were talking to them about what the experience had been like and one of the guys was like, you just can't comprehend what it's like to be in a community that has so recently been at war with itself. Mm. One day they were going to have a feast, so he and one of the Timorese actors got in the car and they drove to a farm to meet a farmer to get a pig. And as they pulled up and they saw the farmer come out, the Timorese actor goes, shit, stay in the car, gets out, goes, chats with the farmer, gets the pig, gets back into the car, drives off in silence. After a couple of miles, he goes, I shot that guy in the ass, man. I was meant to kill him. I didn't want to, so I shot him in the ass and I just went and bought a pig off him. And <laughs> that's just never a thing as Australians that we're going to encounter, that we're going to go to the shops or go to the farm yeah. and find someone who is probably walking around with lead in their ass that we put there. It just gives you a little insight into the difficulty of what it must be like to come to a place of peace mm. after being in conflict. Mm. How do you just go and buy a pig off that man? Contact Mike is a podcast about people by Sarah Walker, Flo Kilpatrick, produced by Kieran Ruffles. Come find us on Facebook, Twitter and on iTunes. This has been Contact Mike. This episode, this episode ends, ends now. now. All right, is this cupcake break? I think it's yep. cupcake break, yeah.